Dunkin' Donuts in the Northeast does not rival Tim Hortons to Canada. And I, I always like to show people the very first Tim Hortons store because it looks like every other crappy ma and pa donut store that exists in strip malls across this great land. Like there was nothing remarkable about it. And so it begs the question, how did that donut store become Tim Hortons, right? And it wasn't because they had a better donut. I mean, arguably people that might be heresy around here, these parts. Is there coffee? Welcome to Innovation and Leadership, where I interview uncommonly high achievers like top investment fund managers, elite special operations soldiers, startup CEOs who sold their companies for billions of dollars, pro athletes, Hollywood filmmakers, really as many different kinds of experts as I can. The whole idea is to hear how they did it and then what advice they have for the rest of us that can be applied to the organizations we're trying to grow and innovate. Thanks for listening, and I hope you enjoyed today's show. Part two of our interview with Chris Neeland. Um, if you didn't catch one, part one, please go back and learn about um, his company, Cult, and about the gathering and uh, his, his business for helping uh, freelancers, especially right now during COVID. And Chris, did I hear you right? that Communo has had like hundreds of people sign up for it be now with COVID? Uh, you, you, you have. I mean, what's really fascinating, so again, freelancers, I mean, we have a bit of an internal nomenclature where we call it a creative refugee camp. But, you know, there are <laughs> tens of thousands of displaced marketers, creatives, designers, writers, that um, are either displaced because the big ad agencies are crumbling or because marketing is rarely considered an essential service. So it's frequently the first department that gets cut as budgets are cut and, and uh, workforce reductions uh, happen. And so um, we, we offer them a home. We, we, you know, Communo is patterned after the metaphor of a commune where everybody comes and partakes and gives a little and takes a little and this wonderful reciprocity ring of sorts. And so um, we, we had about uh, over, I think it took us about four years to get to 30,000 uh, users. And we're onboarding, picking, depending on the day, let's say on average 200 a day now. So uh, it just kind of speaks to the, I think the, the crisis, the economic crisis we're in. And I hope what it speaks to is a recognition. I, I hope that we emerge from this economic downturn different, where we reimagine um, the contingent workforce and, and who should really be a full-time salary and the joys of self-employment and the power to work remotely. And uh, I think we were operating under some really bad paradigms that were made popular at the you know, onset of the industrial revolution. And we never really had a shift as we embraced the information age. It, it changed, you know, the tools that we use, but it didn't necessarily change how we work. We were still going to look for full-time jobs and going to work each day in an obnoxious commute inside a large high rise, inside an expensive property. And uh, so we're, we're really looking forward to a much more disruptive and critical look at why, do, why are we even doing these things yeah, I love it. You know, um, I took the very uh, traditional route to investment banking, getting into mergers and acquisitions for Citigroup. Uh, I'm originally an art school dropout. <laughs> I was an illustration major and uh, dropped out to become an entrepreneur and accidentally got headhunted, <laughs> jumpstarted my finance career. But like my inner artist loves that there's people like you making it more possible, making them more marketable. Um, it sure seems like creativity is only 
like, I don't know, I just think about, like, I'm not a great accountant, right? Uh, and yet you look at AI and these things that are making so many of those kinds of skills less and less valuable and creativity and innovation seem to be, I don't know, they're, they're things I'm certainly pushing my kids towards, right? Yeah, I, I, I'm a believer. I don't know if you ever follow or have heard of Peter Diamante. Yeah, yeah. Singularity University. He's a great sort of futurist and thought leader. And he, he often talks about how the, the resistance of change is not the idea. And in nowadays, it's not even the capital to birth the idea. It's the policymakers and the legacy systems and the, I forget the word for fear of change, neo-theism or something like that. But like, it's like, it's all this other stuff. Like Airbnb's problem or Uber's problem is not getting more takers. It's getting cities to change the bylaws that will allow what they're doing to be possible. Or getting, you know, the, the taxi cab lobby to uh, agree that what it was doing was antiquated. And so, uh, you know, I, I'm a big fan of a crisis because it really whittles away all the fluff and gets us focused on what's substantive. And, um, you know, there's, there's just no reason why the, you know, the majority of North Americans need to spend one to two hours a day commuting to an office. It's just not productive time <laughs> and it disrupts your quality of life. It's horrible for the environment. And uh, I think what we're realizing for many people, you know, I don't think that we should never return to work. I'm actually a fan. It's a shame that the, the, the founders and the operators of WeWork for such doofuses because it actually is a good model. The, the co-working space is a good model. I just think it was woefully mismanaged by Adam and his cohorts. But uh, I hope that there's a, a, a resurgence of always questioning why are we doing something? And if the answer is because that's the way we've always done it, that's the first reason to kill it. You know, last week I just had somebody else I really look up to on the show, um, I don't know if you know Shane Snow that wrote Smart Cuts and started Contently. You familiar no. with him at all? Uh, his book Smart Cuts is amazing. It, it's really about like basically quit standing in line and climbing the ladder you're supposed to. Instead, make your own ladder or hack your own ladder. And he just goes through, you know, why U.S. presidents often become president before most people even become a senator, or how this guy skipped ahead leagues in race car driving, or the guy who invented Ruby on Rails. He didn't follow all the programming things that you have to do. And instead, he like built in all these e easy buttons for the stuff that you have to do repeatedly, right? Um, instead of just getting in line and going down the same route as everyone else. Um, you know, I, I think the next question I have is I'm thinking about all these people that we're trying to help. Um, we're trying to help them grow their business. And maybe we have those folks who they, they do think they've got something special and they're earlier on in that journey of trying to really achieve that cult-like status of their followers. You know, they've got people who really, really love their stuff and they're trying to double down on it. Um, if you had advice for people who are, are trying to figure out how to take it to the next level, um, there, you've obviously got things like, you know, trying to get tickets and, and come up to Banff and go to the gathering. But what other advice do you have for founder entrepreneurs who they think they've got something special, but they want to take it to the next level? Well, there's a, there's a very famous adage in, I forget who says it, but it was Dan Ogilvy or one of these ad age guys that said, um, that the question that plagues all business owners is how big can we get uh, before we turn bad? And mm. this idea that um, I certainly subscribe to that, that Wall Street has destroyed many special companies 
it's, it's usually a better option for the shareholders or an exit strategy for the founders more than it is an advantage to the customer base. Um, and I think Wall Street short-termism is a, is a pandemic that uh, rivals this coronavirus. It just is killing companies left and right. Um, so I de definitely would say it's never, like when we have the gathering and we have these you know, world-class multi-billion dollar brands up there, lots of small business owners will say you know, amazing stories, but I can't relate. And I'm like, well, shame on you. Where's your imagination? Because every one of these brands started out in somebody's garage or as a single store. <laughs> um, you know, it's like nobody was born a multi-billion yeah. dollar successful. Well, so I loved hearing about your gas station. I mean, it, uh, in, in the previous episode, everyone who, who missed it, but because it made me think like here in Utah, there's only one gas station that I feel like has any personality at all. It's Maverick. And they've like really branded them for outdoor people. If you like, if you like dirt bikes or wake surfing or, or snowmobiling, like they are like, they've even repainted the stores and it's like, they're trying to cater to like supporting that, that demographic. And, you know, the shell stations and the no name stations are all just gas stations to me. And those guys are like actively, it's funny. I don't even think they've really done anything for us. But when I go there, I feel like they're supporting my tribe, you know? Um, yeah, 100%. 100%. I mean, that, but that's the difference between what you're really trying to do. So, you know, I think that's at the core of your question. I think you have to decide. Um, I don't believe that being special and being successful are mutually exclusive, but I do think there's an order of operations. I think if you try to be special, there's a good chance you're going to become successful. And even if you're not as successful, like I think of a Patagonia, for example, they could become more financially successful, but at what point is enough enough? The founder is a multimillionaire um, and he's privately held, so he doesn't have to answer to shareholders that believe in perpetual, unsustainable growth. Uh, so pick, pick, pick one. And if you just want to be successful, it's going to be much harder down the road to become special because people aren't going to believe you. It, it's a, you can't grow a conscience or a soul after the fact as easily as you can when you're, you know, small and nimble. And then the second part, do you be patient? I mean, I think most people, you know, we watch too much TV and we're trying to be the next Mark Zuckerberg. And one of the things I love about the stories that are shared from the gathering is, you know, these are sometimes generational stories. Every year we've had a brand that's at least a hundred years old. Um, and I'm not saying you have to wait for that long, but I mean, there is something about um, letting things take run their natural course versus artificially stimulating it because we have an impatience to achieve some make-believe, you know, metric of success, which is most often a vanity metric for the owner's own ego, more so than, you know, focus on quality of life, focus on quality of care for your customers, focus on being the best, not necessarily the biggest. And then uh, the, the fourth ingredient is in let it marinate for a while. Give it the time it needs versus, you know, we, we kind of, some, everybody read the same good to great book 20 years ago about doubling every five years. And that became this management philosophy that I've never subscribed to. I think it ruins more companies than it helps. Yeah. You know, um, it's interesting. You know, I, I look in the, I look in the skateboard snowboard world right? And I look like close to you, there's that skate shop, The Source. I don't know if you've seen those stickers all over, but it's funny to me, like how many different cities, like all over the place, even my years in Southern California, that you'll see The Source stickers. And like, it, it's funny, this idea of like, 
it doesn't have to be giant to be special, right? Even though, you know, it's like the media all gives us an infor- inferiority complex that we weren't a billionaire before 30 like Zuckerberg, right? Um, so I'm, I'm interested, um, as you think about um, those folks who maybe they are willing to be that little bit more patient, um, what, what kind of principles, what, you know, we talked about having people feel like an insider. What, what's another principle? that you think maybe people can be emphasizing more? Well, I, I think that, that you need to switch the, the, the idea from a transactional uh, relationship to one that's much more reciprocal in the exchange of value. Um, you know, and, and when I think about all of the money that's spent on that paid media versus what could go into content marketing, you know, I, I think back to like Lego. Lego is one of my favorite cult brands. Lego was having a bit of a sales slump 10 years ago. I could imagine in my mind's eye the emergency executive meeting and who's got ideas and somebody wants to do a BOGO offer, somebody wants to, um, you know, invent a new play set, somebody else wants to, um, you know, find ways to reduce costs. And some guy in the back of the room says, let's make a movie. And they're like, what? what do you mean make a movie? And they're like, yeah, I have this crazy idea. What if we made a movie and it would help people? fall in love with the brand again and um they go well we don't we don't even make movies what's that even going to cost he goes well i need 80 million dollars 80 million dollars what are you talking about you're, 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 you know there are some companies that would fire that guy but yet that guy convinced the board to do it the board went on to make 400 million dollars just in ticket sales box office sales not no not not to mention re-endearing the brand to not just my 14-year-old kid, but I wanted a Millennium Falcon set again. I just reminded <laughs> me of what I loved about Lego. So like, it was a different way of thinking about how do we add value and what business are we really in? They're in the imagination business. And you know, when you think about that, if you're in the toy block business, you market differently than if you're in the imagination business. If you're in the imagination business, you're more like Disney, and therefore you should be doing the things that Disney does. So uh, when you look at it through that lens, or when you look at it in hindsight, you're like, well, of course they did. You know, we honored Hot Wheels at the gathering this year, and that's another one of my favorite childhood brands. And, you know, Hot Wheels thought to themselves, what business are we really in? And they're in the car lover business brand. They're in the competition uh, brand and their, their whole tagline a challenge accepted but they started making life-size hot wheels they, they literally built a real life orange loop-de-loop track they have the world's record for the longest car jump so they took a page out of red bull and gopro and they brought hot wheels to life in in a way that is remarkable now now they're at auto shows and they're attracting auto designers that used to work on Porsche that now want to go make, you know, one sixty-fourth miniature cars because of what the brand represents. So again, it comes back to creativity and courage, and um, and that's where that's what will separate the good from bad. It's not about your category. I don't. It's very hard for me to find a category that couldn't be more special than it is. It's just that we need to think different about. Yeah, you know, I think it's so optimistic or so encouraging when you talk about. Yeah, but every one of these big businesses was in a garage one day, you know, like have a little imagination, right? Yeah. Um, I, I think one of the things that I really like is I've watched your YouTube videos and um, stuff like this. Besides, by the way, do you have a book yet? Have you written a book yet? We do. It's called Fix. Um, it's on Amazon and it goes into eight specific attributes that cult brand leaders display that their mediocre peers don't. So if you're looking for the real playbook, uh, I'd encourage you to get a copy. Okay. 
Um, second question, is it an audio? Do you have an audio book of it? Uh, there, there's an audio version as well. Yeah. Oh, man. I'm buying that. I, I hesitate to drive people to that because I did the recording and I can't stand the sound of my own voice. <laughs> uh, if that's your preferred way of consuming it, then go for it. Yeah, I'm for sure downloading that. I'm going to go buy that as soon as we're done here. Okay. So um, I would love to hear any more stories of, you know, the Wawa's, these, you know, the gas station, the, you know. I would love any more stories of maybe more relatable sized businesses that had the guts to go do this. Any, any others come to mind for you? Well, I mean, the one that I, I, I'll, I'll, I'll give you two quick ones. I mean, um, in Canada, the most iconic and beloved brand for decades has been Tim Hortons. <laughs> I knew that's what you're going to say. And, um, you know, I, I, and, and New York cannot, you know, Dunkin' Donuts in the Northeast does not rival Tim Hortons to Canada. And I, I always like to show people the very first Tim Hortons store because it looks like every other crappy ma and pa donut store that exists in strip malls across this great land. Like there was nothing remarkable about it. And so it begs the question, how did that donut store become Tim Hortons, right? And it wasn't because they had a better donut. I mean, arguably people that might be heresy around here, these parts of is their coffee legitimately superior or is their donut legitimately better? To me, Krispy Kreme was the most novel donut I've ever eaten in regards. It didn't seem like a donut that I'd had someplace else before. But Tim Hortons was this commitment to not wanting to just be a small crappy donut store. So again, it wasn't the category. It was the creativity and the courage of the owner to start to say, we're gonna stand for something bigger. So they stood for community more than they stood for donuts. So they had different policies that encouraged people to come and hang out at the store. They understood the nuance of the marketplaces that they served. So they knew that there's a huge part of the population that was waking up at 5.30 to get to the ice rink at 6 a.m. for their first hockey time. You know what they could probably use? A nice hot cup of coffee and a donut. So they opened their stores earlier. They went out to tertiary markets faster. So they had a distribution strategy that said, we're going to become, you know, we'll go to a city of 5,000 as opposed to limiting our stores to cities of 500,000. Uh, they made investments. So proceeds went into community hockey programs and Timbits hockey is now a rite of passage for every young Canadian kid, you know, starts learning how to skate through a Timbit hockey program. So, you know, like it, it's what are you tethering yourself to and what are you trying to accomplish? And, uh, you know, some of those decisions probably were financially uh, painful. They, you know, it was those retained earnings were put back into the product as opposed to into the owner's pocketbook for a while. But he wasn't trying to get rich quick. He was trying to build a legacy and therefore the investments were different and the objectives were different. And then I, the other one I use is Kroger. I mean, Kroger is a grocery store chain that's very popular, particularly at the Midwest. I think they've had something stupid, like 120 consecutive quarters of growth. Like their success rate is off the charts. And again, you kind of like, it's just a grocery store. Yeah, yeah. It's not that different than anybody else's grocery store, but it is because of a few things that they do. They were among the first to adopt a lot of analytics in the old adage that you are what you eat is never more true. Probably other than credit card companies, grocery stores know more about you than anybody else. My grocery store started sending me neonatal stuff. It knew that we were pregnant before we told our parents 
we were pregnant <laughs> because of what was happening in our grocery basket. Um, but Kroger made a huge investment in analytics and in the loyalty program. Kroger made a huge investment in service. They had, they had a program, for example, that like you'll never wait in a checkout line for more than 60 seconds. So particularly when you're coming home from work and you know your, your, your spouse causes they pick up some roast chicken and some tomatoes, you think to yourself, where am I going to go? Well, oh, Kroger's got a guarantee, you know, you're in and you're out in, in 60 seconds or less. So they built programs and services that made it a better experience besides just, you know, a retail flyer about always being the cheapest. It's not the cheapest. There are other cheaper places to buy uh, your produce, but it's a better experience. And it goes back to what the ambitions were of the leadership team. Uh, and so, you know, I, I like to say these are, these are categories that are really easy to be boring in if you just decided you wanted to be boring, uh, but you don't have to be. Well, as, as you're saying that, I think the words that are coming back to me is, you know, you talked about just transactional, right? Mm -hmm. You know, Warren Buffett's always trying to buy businesses that have, he says, that are defensible. You know, the castle has high walls around it and a big moat, you know? And that transactional stuff, it just feels so short term, right? But when you talk about, you know, as I grew up having it referred to at Tim's, everybody knows that means Tim Hortons, right? When you think about what you were telling about Tim's and investing in those smaller communities and stuff, there are places that definitely get a Tim's before they get a McDonald's, right? And it is long-term thinking. It, anyways, it feels that way to me. Like, it sounds so cliche to talk about it as like a relationship with their customer, I just can't think of another way to say it. But when you describe that stuff, it does sound like this like this deeper level of caring for the humans that they're going to interact with instead of, can I get another transaction done to make my quarterly numbers? Well, we do. I mean, it's called engagement marketing for a reason. And that metaphor of engagement goes to people that get engaged to each other, have a, have a marital relationship, and that's what you go for. And, um, you know, so unfortunately, society tends to be in a Tinder-based world where, you know, that they're more interested in a one-night stand than a long-term relationship. And so you reap what you sow a little bit. Um, but I, the other thing I would draw your attention to is I don't know that it's transactional as much as it's, I keep going back to this idea that nobody needs us. In North America, we have an abundance of choice, too much choice. There's 14 different ranch dressings in my grocery store. <laughs> I don't need 14 ranch dressings. So brand leaders, anybody that has the ego big enough to think I'm going to start a new company or offer a new product or service that doesn't exist has to accept the fact that nobody needs that product. So what they need to do is say, I need them to want that product. We're in the preference business not in the needs fulfillment business. Cause I can get it. If my favorite burger chain was to go out of business, I'd be sad and I'd have five other options of where to go get a comparable burger, right? They're just not that much different. So if you're in the, if you think of your job as to decommoditize your category, you're either going to invent new categories. So, you know, I love your idea that if you know, you're this, this financial uh, advisory or this fund, but you also are providing growth advice where it's not just capital, but it's shepherded capital or something else. That's different. That's different than everybody else in your competitive set that's just offering dollars, right? So everybody's got to find the differentiator. And if you don't have a good one, just get out of the business because otherwise you, now you're just contributing to the noise. And it's why when you drive around on a Saturday afternoon, all you hear are mattress commercials. 
because there's no difference. Everybody's got the same mattress. They don't know when you need a new mattress, so they just bombard, I, I call it carpet bombing, uh, the airwaves by our mattress, by our mattress. And you know how they compete? $1,000 off, long-term financing, buy one, get one free. It's like they're just bribing you to buy it because there's no meaningful differentiator there. And, uh, and why would we want to waste our best selves on a business that can't explain to somebody why they're actually better than somebody else in a way that makes a meaningful difference? You know, this has been a concept that uh, I've spent, been spending more time on lately, and I, I love your thinking on it. You know, you talk about the blue ocean strategy, and um, you talk about being different. Um, do you know the the eighty twenty principle, the book by Richard Koch? Have you heard of that one? I mean, I know the Pareto yeah. principle is eighty twenty. Well, it, it, yeah, it's on? one of like the better selling books in that genre. I'm I'm a real audiobook nerd. Um, but he came out with a new revised version. It was like, you know, the 10 year anniversary or 15 year anniversary or something. And he added like all this extra stuff about how we can learn from the world around us and like where these principles show up in nature. And to your point about being different, he talks about species of animals and how basically like the, the scientific theory can tell you like if there's two, if there's two species of animals that are too similar where they want to be housed in the same way they want to eat the same food this kind of stuff that inevitably it turns into a showdown and that one of those two will disappear it'll go extinct mm -hmm. in that region and that essentially the way that somewhat similar species coexist is when these birds uh, are they're evolved to to like nesting in the top of the trees and these ones want the bottom of the tree and these ones like this food and this one's like that food and that those are the ones that don't have a threat to their survival and I think about it in business and I think about, you know, unfortunately having ADHD, I've started a whole bunch of businesses that didn't go anywhere. And then, you know, had a couple that made a ton of money. Right. So I think about all these businesses that didn't go anywhere. And I think how many times I was lying to myself that we were different. Like, I think I thought I was the only one who thought we were different. None of the customers could tell any difference. Right. Yeah. And we like, we sit around the boardroom table drinking our Kool-Aid about how special we are. And, oh, you can't even compare us to us. We're so much better, you know? But in an objective way, it, it's certainly not to the degree that the customers could tell, right? And, and those were places where our, our business went extinct. And this idea of, of instead of trying to be the best in the group, trying to be the only one just seems like such a competitive advantage. Well, it is. And, and, and it's, it's one of the reasons why I can earn a living is because uh, you sometimes need that outsider objectivity. There is too much nasal gaze, navel gazing. And, you know, I think the number one reason why sometimes CMOs hire me is because I'll go tell their boss something that they're too scared to tell them for fear of getting <laughs> fired. Yeah. And it's like, well, I already know I'm here short term. So getting fired is not the worst thing that I can imagine. And uh, we call it the sea of sameness. And, uh, you know, there, there is a lot of differentiation. The question is, is it meaningful? Uh, differentiation and particularly in times mm. of crisis um, incremental improvements don't cut it when, when, when it's time of crisis and there's a shuttering uh, a loss of GDP and, and a, a retrenching of spend um, people are going to go back to the things that are the most familiar to them so you know now is not the time to try to be competing against Kellogg for a better cereal or Cliff Bar for a better power bar I know it seems like Utah is the hotbed for power bar marketers. Uh, it's like, yeah, is it really that different? Oh yeah, ours tastes better. Ours is 10% less fat or whatever it is. Like guys, that's not going to matter unless there's an abundance of choice and income. 
And I, so I think that marketing through a recession is going to separate the, the wheat from the shaft a whole lot faster because you're going to get this cold awakening that you're actually not as differentiated as you thought you were. And therefore, people are going to go to either what they've habitually been doing or the cheapest or the easiest to access. Yeah. Yeah, such a good point. Well, um, I know we're about out of time. Maybe Maybe this is a good place to end. You know, I, I really appreciated your comment at the end of part one, where you talked about um, this idea that essentially like our own integrity, our own character is probably the glass ceiling on our businesses. Um, when you think about, you know, CEOs, founders, especially, or, you know, anybody who's the leader, they're trying to innovate, they're trying to create more of a cult-like following with their customers. And they're realizing I need to be setting the example. I need to be looking at my leadership blind spots more than I am now. Any advice for someone who wants to who wants to improve their own character that you suggest? Boy, that's a tough one because I mean I think character is is built from you know years of of experience. I, I would say the the most salvageable people are the people entering into leadership positions and they're trying to find their role models. And unfortunately, whether it's Hollywood or just notable examples in the press. Um, we tend to gravitate towards these really polarizing characters as opposed to the genuine, you know, the old adage, nice guys finish last is not just true in dating. I think there's just a lot of really good brand leaders that because they're not seeking the limelight, um, you know, you don't know about their charitable contributions. You don't know about their leadership style or their sacrifices unless somebody um, tells their tale, which is what we try to do with the gathering is make heroes out of them. Um, so I would say if you're, if you are still young enough or humble enough that you, that you're not, you know, set in your ways, just know that there are, um, alternatives to forcing your will on people. I have prided myself as the boss that only one time in my 25 year career have I ever used the rank card. You're going to do this because I said so because I'm the boss. I do it all the time as, as a parent. <laughs> My kids don't get that same benefit. But I always thought that if I have to convince somebody to do something because I'm the boss, I failed. I failed at building the business case or demonstrating the rationale or, or displaying my persuasion in a way that would motivate them to do so. Because nobody wants to do something because they're told they have to uh, because you're the boss. So uh, yeah, I would just say, uh, you know, if you are a good person, that there's hope for you and don't feel like you have to lose that part of your personality in order to have a success. That's great. Well, okay, final, final question. I think about um, what you guys have created that is legitimately special. And, and um, you know, you look at all the success that you've had what do you attribute that to? What What do you think that you have legitimately done different? Um, I have a really healthy disdain for the status quo. So um, I have no interest in doing something that's marginally better or the same elsewhere. Um, I'm a bit of a provocateur by nature. Uh, I just think life's too short to associate with mediocrity or boring things. So uh, I, I think that improves my tolerance for risk a little bit. And I think I'm self-aware enough about, uh, I don't try to make my weaknesses stronger. I spend my time exploiting my strengths and surrounding myself with people who are great compliments to my weaknesses. Um, and so, well, yeah, what would you say uh, your strengths are? Well, I think that I'm a um, teacher at my core. Uh, I, I think if I was, if I was, you know, if you've ever seen those archetype or those persona types, I'm, I'm a professor. I can take complex 
um, situations and simplify them in ways that people can understand and be get excited about. So this whole idea of cult branding and trying to distill that down into eight principles and finding examples that people can relate to to say, oh, I get it. And then, and then ideally saying, oh, that's desirable. I'd like to not only study that, I'd like to do that for a career or devote myself to doing that or change my company uh, to become that. And so uh, I think I can, uh, you know, I think a combination of um, making complex things simple and then hopefully providing the encouragement necessary to go and do hard things would be some of my strengths. I love it. Well, everybody, um, Please go get Chris's book, The Fix. I just bought it on Audible while we've been interviewing here. Uh, <laughs> and check out the cult ga- check out cultgathering.com and uh, go check out beautiful Banff, Alberta. Um, Chris- yeah, you're welcome, Batman. Let's assume that the social distancing <laughs> allows us to actually sit in a room together and the, the gathering's next February. And it's uh, we cap it at a thousand brand leaders. So um, you don't want to delay on that. And uh, otherwise, yeah, follow me on LinkedIn. Uh, I, there's no shortage of, of uh, rants that I like to get on my soapbox. Okay, La- last, last thing. Can I just say, I was looking at your Facebook and I was laughing so hard at the uh, motorized alligator head <laughs> that, you, that you had posted about. That just seems like the greatest thing. Yeah, uh, that would be a fun weekend for sure. Seriously. Let's go do that uh, Lake Powell or something. <laughs> okay, thanks everybody for tuning in.